Please stand with me in honor of the word of God, if you're able, as I read Daniel 7, 13 through 18. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Keely. You may be seated. We're reading the Bible uh, together here at Grace Harvest Church this year. And I'm preaching from one of the texts that we're reading from. We just finished uh, Esther, and we're just about to finish Daniel. So I'm preaching from this text today in Daniel. There's two ways to look at Daniel and the outlay of Daniel. One, you kind of see the first six chapters talking about Daniel and his three friends and their kind of historical books. And then the last six chapters really get into Uh, prophecy, and so there's a way of kind of dividing it in those two ways. One of the others, too, that goes pretty close along with that is looking at how it's written and how it is linguistically, and that is Daniel's one of the few books that is written a lot in Aramaic, and so we have uh, the first part of Daniel written in Hebrew, first chapter, and then from Daniel uh, verses 2-4, Uh, through into chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, and the last is written in Hebrew. So that's two ways to see how the book is kind of divided up, getting that general background and how to approach it. That that helps a lot. What we're going to look at is what I've titled today's sermon is the Son of Man. And we see that in uh, verse 13, that behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. This is a term that Jesus used uh, referring to himself, uh, not necessarily that uh, talking about uh, his humanity and, and being humble, but he's actually connecting himself in Scripture to Daniel. So what we want to look at, specifically when we look at the Son of Man, is we want to see how Daniel points us to the Son of Man, who is Jesus. Some of the Scriptures that we see Uh, where these things are happening uh, linguistically and what's happening in the beginning. In Daniel 1, 6 through 7, it says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So you begin reading Daniel with uh, this time when we've looked at this, when we've been studying 
in the past that were in the time of exile, when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, has uh, wrought siege upon Jerusalem. He's defeated the Assyrians. He's the new ruling king, new empire in the world, and he is leading uh, captives from Jerusalem in different waves back. And Daniel and his friends are the cream of the crop, kind of from Judah and the elite royal court who have gifts and abilities that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wants to use in his new kingdom. So they're bringing them and adapting them to their kingdom and their culture. And we see that, first of all, by them giving them uh, new names, naming them uh, differently. And also they struggle right after that with different things. Uh, We see in chapter 1 with their eating and their dietary laws, and there's resistance there. And we see all the way through Daniel, one of the themes would be like, how do you live in this world as exiles? We as Christians are not to be uh, comfortable here and fitting in here and everything going our way. Uh, Christianity has a, a way about it that is opposing to Uh, the way that the world does things. If we're friends of the world, we're enemies of God, and that's just the way it is. And so um, to be friends with God, we are naturally going to be enemies in the world. We're going to have conflict, and we are not to be all settled down, comfortable, everything going our way. Uh, That's not to be expected in this life. And so we see that in the life of Daniel. We also see that uh, There's a lot of kings and kingdoms mentioned in Daniel. And I chose this text specifically that not only is the revealing of the sons of of man, but it's about uh, rulers in this world and their empires. And what the portion that is written Aramaic is, which is chapters 2 through 7, is linked together in chapters 2 and chapter 7. So they kind of all those stories in between link and interlock. There's linguistic things that are written in there. If you could read it in the original language, there's chiastic poetry that's written in there that, that creates these really neat interconnections. But one of the things that we can just see is that the prophecy giving, given to Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that, that nobody can tell and nobody can interpret, that's a great demand, isn't it? In chapter 2, I don't want you just to tell me the interpretation of my dream, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed first. And who can do that? Uh, Nobody can. All the magicians and sages and all the wise people, like, no one can do that. Just tell us the dream. And he's like, you're Stalin. I'm going to kill all of you if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation. And when this news gets to Daniel and his three friends, Daniel goes to his three friends and says, are you going to kill all of us, you know, and, you know, let's pray. Let's get together. Let's let the Lord, you know, he's the God of all mysteries. And so they get together and pray, and Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and says, you know, don't kill everybody. Uh, You know, I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to tell you what your dream was in the interpretation. And he's like, what God can do that? You know, who are you, Daniel? I mean, and and Daniel's always with all these kings and dealing with them. He's like, it's not me. I want to tell you about a God who knows everything and knows all mysteries. And so there's that aspect of being, that's being revealed in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. And what's being revealed is that all of these other kings and kingdoms are temporary 
And what Daniel is saying, and these kings even, most of them, end up admitting, is that there is a king and a kingdom that is coming that will never be done away with, that will be forever. There is a forever king and a forever kingdom. So Daniel is pointing to that. He's pointing to this son of man that will be this king and kingdom forever. And so when Daniel 2 does that and talks about these four kingdoms, you have this uh, statue that, you know, he says that he saw, tells him what he saw, and then gives the interpretation to him. And he says that he's that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. He's that first king. And then there's this silver, and this is the, the next Medes and Persians. It's kind of a divided kingdom up into them. That's where we have Darius, the Mede, and, and, and Cyrus, the Persian king, coming in. So that's part fulfilled in Daniel. You start reading about that. That happens within Daniel. But then you have the silver and the bronze after that, and then the, clay, the iron and the clay, the iron legs. And so, and it gets a little bit into the Grecian Empire in Daniel, but then we see the fulfillment in the Roman Empire of that final, uh, the legs of iron. And so these fulfillments are these kings and kingdoms, but it doesn't end there. There's always a kingdom that comes. This is what we read about today. So seven links these two. They're interlinking, chiastically uh, written. So two holds these two together, written in this Aramaic language, and seven is Daniel's vision that he has, and he sees pretty much the same thing, but in different symbols. He has a dream with four beasts, you know, a lion, like a lion, so he's trying to describe it, like a bear, like a leopard, like a beast that's just terrifying with ten horns coming out of it, and this is the same thing. This is the same dream. It's interlocking. It's about these kingdoms. And at the end of that, he has the same revelation in seven. And that's what I chose the text today, that this, uh, there's this person who comes, this ultimate king who comes. He's like, so all these others were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, like a, I mean, he says, like a, the son of man. And this is the title that Jesus, his most favorite term uh, that he used to refer to himself was the son of man. He's connected, very interwoven, Jesus is with Daniel. It is, man, for 12 chapters, it is so deep, so heavy, so weighty, so much in that, so much interwoven with Jesus and his life. It's just beautiful. Um, And one of the things, what I'd like to do, because it can just go anywhere in that, is to look at one of the famous stories in Daniel and in Daniel 6 with Daniel in the lion's den, okay? Daniel at this time, uh, we read uh, in the beginning of, 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 the, of chapter 6 that he is, this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. So Daniel is unique because of this excellent spirit that is within him. And he acknowledges that over and over and over again. It's not me that's going to give you this interpretation. It's this God that I know. And there's this excellence about Daniel. And this is the first thing that I want to look at that compares and interweaves as we look at Daniel in the lion den with Jesus. I want you to see uh, Daniel now, too. He was a little boy when he was taken captive of the royal court. You know, most people estimate, you know, 15, 17 years old, somewhere around in there. And now you have him at the end 
of, of the Nebuchadnezzar and, and rule, and you have uh, Darius the Mede ruling, and Cyrus coming in, and Daniel's living then, now, and there's been 70 years of captivity. So if Daniel was 17 and you had 70, he's like 87. He's, he's, a, he's an older man now getting cast into the den of lions, still facing uh, rulership of different kings, still facing what it's like to live in exile under these rulers, and still maintaining his relationship with his God and his Hebrew uh, upbringing and religion and everything that he has in it. He's still maintaining all that. So he's a phenomenal uh, man that uh, the Bible very rarely does uh, because even when you look at David, you see all his faults and his adulteries and all these different things. You know, you see Solomon and all his failures. You see Samson and all of his failures and all the judges. And, and, and Daniel, you don't really see a whole lot of that. You just see this man of integrity that's standing. And it could be easy to take Daniel and take a book like this and say, what we all need to do is be like Daniel. But Daniel is always saying, don't be like me. Be like this Son of man, be like this one who is giving me all of this. He's always pointing the way. So I guess that's the reason why God can exalt him uh, with his spirit in such a way because Daniel seems to be able to remain by God's grace and mercy uh, this uh, humility of just saying it's, it's all God. You know, everything I have is from him. All the mysteries, all the wisdom, all the revelation that I have, it's all from God. So there's this uh, a way of kind of looking at Daniel, admiring what he did, but admiring more the one that we desire to make famous, not Daniel, but Daniel's God, the Ancient of Days, who brings us in to reveal to us one who is like the Son of Man, who has given a kingdom that will be forever, who will be his king that he will establish on a throne that will be forever and ever. This is the hope of Daniel this is what, you know, is the character and integrity. It's a hope that lies beyond where he's living in under, underneath these kings and kingdoms. He sees them all as a, as a phase in this world, and he's looking with hope. This is our example, to look with hope towards a king and a kingdom to come that will be. So that's what chapters 2 and 7 do. 2 lists these kings and kingdoms that come, and they're all going to pass away, they're all going to be, the two is really neat because the stone comes down and crushes that whole image and just, just grinds it into powder. The head of gold, the head, all the kingdoms of the world, grind just into powder, nothing but that powder becomes a mount and grows. It's, it's, it's a stone that comes that's cut out without human hands. It's a kingdom that's not built from human hands, by human hands. It's the supernatural kingdom of God that comes. And Daniel has that same vision with the beast. He sees this one coming like a son of this, some, something that is supernatural from the ancient of days that bring a, ki- a kingdom that we long for to come, where a king, where the government can rest on his shoulders, where he can be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, and, and the government can rest on his shoulders and he can rule in righteousness and peace. And I believe we long for that as believers, but I believe other people long for that too. They long for righteousness to rule. They might not know how to verbalize that, but they long for this. There's, there's, a, there's a deep underlying longing for things to be right in the world. They have a lot of different and what we would consider as Christians wrong approaches to getting there. 
But that desire for that is, is a fight with people. We want that right ruler uh, now to bring about this kind of peace and change uh, in the world. And Daniel brings that forth, and he's in this controversy uh, now with a new king at his old age, still not done with trials, still not done with tribulation. You know, like I said, probably about 87 years old. I'd hope I'd be through with fights and battles by then because I get sick of them, but they're not going to go away. And Daniel's in one of the heatedest battles again. He's got schemers and planners. He's because of his excellent spirit. In Daniel 6, it's because God's rising, because Darius has given him such favor amongst the 120 satraps, and he has these, uh, you know, four leaders over-governing all of that. And out of those, Daniel is, is the one who's the cream of the crop, and he's about to make him leader over those leaders. Second in the kingdom again, Daniel's rises to the top, 87, you know. But these schemers don't want that, and especially those other leaders and you know what? They can't find anything to, to entrap Daniel upon. Isn't that amazing? Like, you know, spies in the world and kingdoms, they always, they're, they're, they're always going after, well, who's this guy, this Russian, you know, spy in the United States, and these, and these huge spy stories, I love them. You know, I, I, I love reading about them, how they happened in the past, how these people rose to the top, how they infiltrated governments and what they did and everything. And, man, they're just, they're master uh, schemers, and they, they get into other countries, they infiltrate, they fit right in, and all these things kind of happen, and, and these are doing that in Daniel's day, you know, and most of the time we don't find out till later. So the king is manipulated by these other chieftains, you know, these other leaders, into making a law because they can't find anything. All these spies, they find something about them. They find a weakness in them. You know, they're either love gambling, love sex and women, love some kind of power, the trade out. They love money. They love something. And they all, their whole goal is to find out, like, what's this dude's sin? You know, they don't put it that way, but like, what's his, his thing? And they all find that out about somebody and they infiltrate them and break them down. Uh, they all lose out as being a good spy because they all have these, you know, these little uh, addictions to sin hidden away and they find out what they are. Daniel, they can't find that. They can't find anything out to get him in trouble, make him look bad, nothing. Isn't that oh, that's kind of, that's great. I love this story. You know, and so they got to like make something about his dedication and devotion to God. Get him in a trap. So they boast up the king, you know, oh, you're great. Don't let anybody worship you. Let's make a decree. No one is about anybody. Like, oh, yes, I'll do it. You know, and he entraps himself, you know, with his pride. But then he's really disappointed when he realizes he's trapped. And he starts interceding and praying for Daniel. He doesn't want him to go to the lion's den, but they all pressure him. Ah, you said, and the law of the Medes and Persians are, you know, it sticks. And even the king has to obey uh, to, to the law of the Medes and Persians. Daniel's going to have to go in the lion's den. We're getting rid of this guy, and we got our plan, and it's, it's tight. It's tight. Our scheme is complete. He's finished. And you, O king, can't do anything about it. King's in distress. And what happens? He has to throw him in. He's sealed in the tomb. Put a big rock on it. And seal it with his signet ring. No one's touch it. No one's do anything. King, this has happened. And the king returns and he, he says, Daniel, the God whom you serve. He's saying, yes. And Daniel's voice comes out of there. And he's still alive with these lions. 
And those lions are really hungry, but God has protected them. He says, you know, that the angel has come and shut the mouth of lions. And so that these lions are really, you know, the king goes, well, I did abide by the law. Now I can make another law. Let's have you guys that did this, you and your family, your women and children, all thrown in there. And it says the lions broke them to pieces in their bones before they hit the ground. So, you know, those, those lions were ferocious and scary. They didn't harm Daniel. I want us to look at this amazing spirit that was within Daniel. You know, Isaiah said, they'll come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And you could almost say that, man, that was Daniel. But it wasn't Daniel. It was Jesus. In Romans 15, uh, you know, Paul is is leading, talking about the Gentiles that will come to the Lord. And this verse is mentioned there, that there'll be a branch from the root of Jesse. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus, Daniel is a type and a shadow of what Jesus will be. But look, even though all the greatness of what Daniel was, Jesus, Colossians 2, 3 says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You think Daniel had some wisdom and knowledge? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were hidden in Jesus. And Daniel's just a tiny, minuscule type of foreshadowing and pointing to who Jesus is, the magnificence of his wisdom. And the spirit that was within him, John 3, the culmination of John 3, this great chapter uh, with Nicodemus and and all this um, teaching that's going on there, uh, concludes in John 3 and verse 34. I wanted to read some around this. It says in John 3, 34 through 36, For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Oh, this is the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man who has all things, and he has the Spirit without measure, and he has all things of the Father. And what is, is Jesus going to do with this this, this whole power, all of it, we will see. We anticipate to look forward. What is he going to do? Is power going to corrupt him like it has every other man? But in verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We sang about that today. What we have in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, life but the wrath of God remains on him, abides on him. Without Jesus, the wrath of God abides, abides on you. We read that today in our liturgy in Romans. It says that we are, we're reconciled. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, and it goes on to explain that we were enemies of God, sinners, enemies of God, the wrath of God was, was with us, but he reconciled us through his blood. He justified us through his, his blood. But Romans 5 eight, you know, God demonstrated his own love towards us while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. You know, he demonstrated his love by dying for us. So he's taking this wisdom and this power, and he's dying for his enemies. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's the wisdom of God, and that is what the world sees as the foolishness of the cross and what Jews see as a stumbling block. This is the wisdom of God, and it abides on Jesus and Daniel was but a foreshadowing of that. Daniel was a foreshadowing, in especially the story in Daniel 6, of the jealousy and the plot against Daniel, the scheming plots that we saw 
in the story today. And they're scheming plots against Jesus. In John 5, 18, it says, hear the word of the Lord. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That's what they were doing. They were plotting and seeking to kill him. John 7, 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Judeans or the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's what they were doing. They were plotting to kill him. John 11 Uh, 45 through 53, I think, is this great culmination of John. He's the one expressing a lot of this, the schemers and the behind. John reveals a lot of this that's going on behind the scenes. But when they come to the, the raising of Lazarus and what happens there is so powerful there, uh, what happens at the end of that uh, in verse uh, 45 of John chapter 11, here the word of the Lord says, may Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees, these are the leaders. This is like Daniel. The top leaders that were with him were the ones that were plotting this. The top leaders of the religious sect of that day and the Pharisees were the ones that were plotting against Jesus. They're authority, their leadership, the the supreme spirit that was on Jesus, the supreme might, the supreme power, the might of God to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's this envy and jealousy and, and there's a striking out against him just like it was with Daniel. He's foreshadowing that. He's pointing that. I want us to see Jesus and what he faced and the plots of his own brothers against him. Not foreigners from different countries, but the plot of his own people doing this with them, the people he had come to save. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on this way, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, you get to the very top, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for his people. This is what they're plotting. Let's kill him. Let's take out this one man. Not that the whole nation should perish. We're doing this good. Let's, you know, save the nation. But, verse 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That's what he was doing and didn't even know it. And not for the nation only. Are you glad for that? Not for the nation of Israel only. But together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So that that day, so from that day, what did they do? They made plans to put him to death. The chief priest from the top up, they are planning to kill Jesus, like, just like Daniel faced. Daniel faces leaders who feign loyalty uh, to the king. Uh, so does Jesus. Uh, he's there. He's, he's, be, he's gone before Pilate. Pilate's beaten him, saying, that's enough. What shall we do with this? And Pilate, in John 19, verse 15, says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest, that is at the top, say, We have no king but Caesar. Man, feigning loyalty to the king. You know they had no loyalty to Caesar, but they feigned it, just like the satraps and the, uh, the leaders uh, in Daniel's day. They feigned, oh, we want to worship you, oh, great, um, you know, Darius, you know. And they didn't. They just wanted to entrap Daniel and get rid of him because they were jealous and envious of him. These futile little battles of the envy and jealousies of men uh, a lot and the devil and his schemes are behind it all uh, embodied in these 
uh, things that are happening in the affairs of man. And so these plots don't change Daniel. He goes and he prays anyway. He doesn't pray because of the decree. It says in Daniel 16, just as he had previously done, he didn't change anything about his, his lifestyle because of this decree. Well, I'm going to revolt against it. No, he was praying all the time, and he continued to do what he, what he was doing, and he was throwing, and Jesus is the same way. Jesus was on his directory uh, towards Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people. He didn't change anything about his character or his integrity uh, because of their scheming and planning, and they both remain uh, true to God's calling in their life. And so the the plots and schemes of men didn't change Daniel, and the plots of, of men don't change Jesus. Um, there's, there's, there's some distress over Daniel. I mentioned that, that the king is praying for Daniel. There's some distress over Jesus. We read a little bit. Pilate's wrestling with it. He doesn't believe he's guilty. He's wrestling with it. And then Matthew 27, we read about even his wife, uh, 25, 19, says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, have nothing to do uh, with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. We don't know much more about it than that. Somehow she said, you know, hey, just don't have anything to do with this. I had a dream and I suffered. She says, here, I have suffered much uh, because of him in a dream. So uh, there's some suffering going on, the, the knowing that the, you know, the, the innocent is being condemned unrighteously. And that's horrible. It's just in any, if you've ever faced someone's accusation of something in the slightest way, it's just a horrible feeling. But in this kind of way, in this kind of magnified way, in the schemes and the plottings of men, you know, Jesus suffered it ultimately. And some other people felt that in Daniel's day and in Jesus' day. There's just all these interwoven correlations. But the main correlation is Daniel, you know, ends in this great high note where he gets delivered, right? Where, where the king calls out to him. He's in his favor. And did God deliver you? And he delivered him from death, right? Shut the mouth of the lions. Didn't get a scratch on him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego comes out of the fire, man, without even the smell of smoke on him, not even a singed hair. Daniel comes out without a scratch on him. Just this beautiful, beautiful deliverance stories, right? What about Jesus' story? Was he delivered? Was he delivered when we sang this morning in the garden? Was he delivered? Did he say, not my will, drink the cup, the cup of my wrath, drink it? No. This must be, please, is there some other way? No, drink. Obey me about the tree. Obey me about the cross. And Jesus fully obeyed Jesus all the way. I mean, God, the Father, the Ancient of Days, all the way to the cross. His obedience, Philippians says, was to the point of death, even death upon a cross, upon that tree. And he obeyed in that garden. He made up his mind, not my will, but your will be done. He reached that conclusion. And on the cross, was he delivered? Was he delivered from that death? He wasn't delivered. There was no, hey, you know, come down. Or what about in the garden, even when they came to arrest him? Did he call on angels? Did he tell Peter, put down his sword? I could call legions of angels. What did he do? He laid down like a sheep going to slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He went. It was God's will. He willingly obeyed God in the garden. And on that cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? forsaken all of that 
not a deliverance like Daniel. No great story. And you know what? Just sealed in a tomb like Daniel was with those lions in there, except Jesus was eaten by the lions. They wagged their heads while he was on the tree and said, if you're the son of God, come down. Said they wagged their heads. They were wagging their heads. Yeah, you saved others. You can't say yourself. All the mocking continued. And Jesus stayed on that tree. He stayed on that cross. God demonstrated his love in Jesus. So it's different with Daniel. He wasn't delivered from the lions. He was delivered over to them and their plots and schemes all the way to death. But you know when um, Darius sealed, you know when he sealed Daniel in the lion's den, it said they put a stone on it. It said they put a stone on that. It said, you're dead, Daniel. You're finished. And you know what? The king sealed it. Sealed it. He had a signet ring. Like, nobody can touch this. No one can tell it to be removed but the king himself. You're in that tomb. And that's where they put Jesus. Joseph of Marathia got him down. They put him in this tomb of rock. And they rolled a stone in front of that tomb. And the Jews and the Pharisees and the chief priests and all the schemers and planners said, hey, you know what, Pilate? He said that he would rise after three days, so we want guards. We want soldiers. And he's like, yeah, have whatever you want. Take guards. Take soldiers and seal it. Seal it. Seal that tomb. He's dead. We know he's dead. You know he's dead. But we don't want them to steal the body and say he rose, right? Because then that would make it worse than it was before when we had him here. So they seal it. They put a stone, just like over Daniel, they put a Roman seal on it. Most of the time these were made out of clay, and they were stamped with the emperor, emperor's stamp in it, saying, no one touch this, and they hung it on there with rope. If you got past the guards, and you got to that, and you broke it, the wrath of the empire of Rome would be upon you. Do not break that seal. No one can break that seal except the emperor himself. So if you were, got past the guards and you got past that seal, you know, that was... You came up against the seal. But no emperor came and said, remove that seal. <laughs> Except the king of kings, the ancient of days, says, there's one like the son of man, and you can't destroy his kingdom, and you can't, cons- you can't destroy his kingship. You can't do it. God is over the affairs of man and over the kings of this earth, and he is the one in control, and he is the one that is all-powerful, and he is the one that has established Jesus and made him king. And that tomb, that stone, was removed. It was rolled away. Angels sat on the top of it, and angels came and, and rescued and declared the gospel and the good news that he is not here. He is risen indeed, just as he said. Whew! <laughs> The tomb, the stone was rolled away and that seal was broken without fear. Without fear of the Roman Empire, the beast with ten horns, kings and powers that would crush like no other kingdom, rule longer than no other kingdom, crushed and removed and subtly brought to an end through the move and the growth of Christianity within its own empire through one reason and one reason alone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, his resurrection was the only thing that motivated the disciples, the thing that motivated the growth of the church, and it is what motivates us today that Jesus is 
the king. He is the one established on the throne from the ancient of days. He is the one that has come. Can somebody shout amen and glory to God. Woo! And so Jesus says this in the end when he's on trial. He's quoting Daniel 7, our text today, uh, in Mark 14, 61 through 62. Jesus remained silent, gave no answer to the people that were given false testimony and all their stuff. He just doesn't answer. The high priest comes out finally and asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And here's what Jesus says. He's basically quoting to him that he's the Son of Man and he's the Daniel of the text that we read today. And here's what he says. I am, said Jesus. So he gives an answer to the chief priest. And you will see the Son of Man, his favorite term of referring to himself, is connecting you to Daniel in this whole story. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that was enough to rip the robe and say he's blaspheming and put him to death because he is either blaspheming or he really is the Son of Man established on the throne of God by the Ancient of Days of God himself, the Blessed One, Jesus the Christ. Which one do you believe? And which one will you give your life towards? Will you live as exiles in this world and say it's all worth it, whatever I give up? Because I live under a different ruler. I live in a different empire. I live with a different king, and that's whom I serve. And everything else, another king and every government and every ruler of this world is all passing away. We have one God. We have one king. We have the Ancient of Days who has established the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, his name is Jesus, and upon him is the government and rulership of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. We'd like to conclude with joining and taking communion together, so you'll find these in your front here. In the bottom, there's a little small cracker. It is just like a cracker but it represents something much bigger. Jesus established at the last Passover communion, and he established it with his disciples. And Paul continues uh, with the establishment of taking communion together uh, in 1 Corinthians. And he says that in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Oh, Father, we remember Jesus. We remember he was a man on this earth. He had a body, a human body, born of Mary, fully God, but fully human also. Born from the womb of Mary, he was fully man. And you desired this one like <clears throat> the Son of Man to perfectly obey your law, perfectly please you, God, and there is nothing we can do to add to that. We must put our faith 
in Jesus alone for our salvation. There is none other but him alone that can give us eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. So we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for coming and being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we remember you today. Stir in our hearts pleasure and joy in you and in all that you've done for us to reconcile us to life eternal. We thank you in Jesus' name. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of this and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you for the gift and the ultimate gift of your Son. For he who did not spare his Son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, everything after that? You've given your Son, Jesus, a secondary. You've given us your Son. You've given us your heart. You've given us your love. And, Jesus, you have shed your blood and justified us through your blood to reconcile us to God. And we give you praise and honor. Help us anoint our hearts to worship you in this closing song we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.